Awesome. Well, good morning, everyone, and uh, welcome to week three in a series that we are calling Grow. And uh, let me just say, if you're just joining us in, in this third week of our series, thanks so much for being here. And uh, basically, what we've been talking about for the past couple of weeks in this series is we have actually been talking about spiritual growth. We've been trying to add some clarity to kind of this vague topic of spiritual growth. And we're talking about instructions in how to and the importance of uh, growing spiritually. And so I just would encourage you, if you did miss the past couple of weeks, if you are just joining us and you would like to catch up on those, um, you can do that on our website or on our podcast. All of that is for free. And that might be helpful, um, especially as it kind of lays some foundation for the conversation that we're um, having this morning. But what we've been doing in this series, kind of our approach, is we've been looking at this New Testament book, the book of Colossians, together. And so we've been kind of going through this book verse by verse. And, and the reason that we've been doing that is because the book of Colossians is really all about spiritual growth. And in the book of Colossians, we're going to find both the importance of spiritual growth and instructions on in how to grow spiritually. And so Colossians is going to help us with that. And our hope is that through this summer, as we go through this series, that all of us will be able to kind of grow together. Uh, DJ had mentioned those journals that are available uh, for five bucks at the Welcome Center. Uh, by the way, that's just to cover costs. We're not making any profit off of those. That's just a way to connect and to grow. If you're on vacation or you're out of town, I know that many of you are traveling this summer, that even if you're not here, you can continue to kind of journey with us uh, through this series. There's daily Bible readings in there, and there's also um, a way to connect with someone else. We encourage you to go through it uh, with someone. You can actually jump in and start today if you want to. Um, and you can do that. But today, as we're continuing in this series, since we're in the book of Colossians, let's just pick up where we left off. And so why don't you get your Bibles and turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. Okay, so grab your Bibles if you got them. Let's go ahead and flip to Colossians chapter 1. And let me just also add that if you do not bring a Bible with you this morning, or if you don't have a Bible, that's not a problem. You can take one of our Bibles, just grab one of those black ones in the chairs uh, that are underneath you, and you can turn to page 821. And those Bibles, that's where you're going to find Colossians chapter 1. So go ahead and get to Colossians 1, however you want to. Uh, also, just want to say, if you're a guest and you don't own a Bible, feel free to take one of ours, make that a gift from us to you. We think it's important that you have a Bible. Okay, as you're flipping there, uh, let me show you a very simple graphic uh, that we're going to be talking about for the remainder of this series as we're in together. So let me just show you this graphic real quick. Uh, this is a very simple graphic um, that Grace Church has developed over the last couple of years. In fact, if you've been coming to Grace for a while, you've probably seen this. Basically what it is, it's a very simple graphic that is intended to try to help explain what the Bible teaches about spiritual growth, okay? So we're going to get into this more in weeks to come, but I want to introduce you to it. Basically, when the Bible talks about the idea of spiritual growth, one of the most common metaphors that's used to describe the growth process is uh, physical maturation. And so you think about human development, right? You go from a baby to a child to an adolescent to an, to an adult to eventually having your own children, and then the whole cycle begins again and kind of goes that way. Well, the Bible steals from that metaphor, it actually uses that language often to describe spiritual growth. And so we're going we're gonna to see that throughout this series. Um, so let me just kind of real briefly, and again, we'll get into this more in weeks to come, explain a little bit about this. So on the left side of the cross here, you have kind of this gray character. Now what that re represents biblically, the Bible tells us that a, a, when a person has not yet embraced Jesus Christ, when they have not yet put their faith in Jesus, they haven't accepted Christ, the Bible would say that person is distant from God, okay? They're investigating Jesus. And so for some of you this morning, as we're even talking, you might say that you would put yourself in that category. You're like, I'm not sure what I believe about God. I'm investigating Jesus. I have a lot of questions about Christ. For some of you, you're like, I'm not anti-Jesus. I just don't know what I think. Some of you may be like, I have some hostility towards religion, towards God. Maybe you came from a bad experience, a bad church experience, whatever. But for whatever reason, uh, this person would represent someone who has not yet embraced Jesus Christ. And I know some of you might find yourself in that category today. Well, the Bible says that when a person does, an, they embrace Jesus and they accept Christ, they put their faith in him. One of the ways that the Bible describes the transformation that takes place in a person's life is the Bible says that person is born again, okay? You may have heard that terminology before. Um, it's, it, it's a very religious kind of term. You may have heard it's actually a political term now too, being born again. But before it was religious or political, it was a biblical term that Jesus used to describe the transformation that takes place when a person places their faith in Christ. They become born again. They're born into a new reality. They're born into a new family. They're born into God's family. Well, then the Bible is going to go on and it's going to tell us that, that just as it is with, with physical growth, that God is so excited when we embrace faith in Christ. God wants that for us. 
But once, once we put our faith in Christ, God does not just want us to stay babies, okay? And so the Bible actually uses this language. It says when we, when we are born again, born into God's family, that we are babies in Christ, that we are infants in Christ. And that, by the way, is not a condescending thing. And so some of you might say that you're in that category. Maybe you're a person who just recently put your faith in Jesus, you just became a Christian, and you're new to the whole Christ thing. If that's the case, the Bible would say you're an infant in Christ, you're a baby in Christ. It's not a condescending, it's actually a really awesome thing. But, but as I said, the Bible's gonna tell us that God desires not that we remain there, that God wants us to grow up into maturity. He wants us to develop to become more like him. And just like any parent in this room uh, who, who loves our kids, we desire that our kids grow up. We want them to develop. One of the saddest things that could happen for our children is if they became arrested in their development, right? That'd be a sad thing for us to witness. And God doesn't want that for us either, not spiritually speaking. I was thinking about this. My wife and I, before uh, we moved here to Medina a couple years ago, we lived in Akron. And we lived kind of on a busy street. And I remember back when we just had one, one child, we just had our, our oldest son, at this time, when he was in diapers, I remember during the summer one time, uh, we were outside playing in the kiddie pool, right? So we had a little kiddie pool and we filled it up and he was in diapers, so I was in there kind of playing with him. And for whatever reason, Jess had to take him back inside. And so she was gonna change his diaper and bring him back out. And so there I was in the kiddie pool by myself, right? <laughs> and I remember thinking, as the cars were whizzing by on this busy road, I remember thinking, I wonder what they're thinking about this scene, because I know that if I drove past an adult man in a kiddie pool, I know what I would be thinking. There'd be one of two things that'd be going through my mind. I would think either, number one, this guy is like a capital C creeper, right? Or like, or two, there, he must be really immature. There must be some kind of developmental problem that's, that exists there, right? Those are the only two conclusions you come to. And, and here's what God's saying. He's saying, listen, when you come to know Christ, I don't want you to stay in the kiddie pool, all right? I don't want you to be an adult male sitting in the kiddie pool, right? I want you to grow up, and I want you to grow into maturity. That's what God desires for us. And so Colossians is actually going to walk through this progression, and we're going to see that. So each week, we're going to kind of go through and explain a little bit of how do we grow, and, and what does that look like, and what does God want for us. But today, uh, just to kind of keep it simple, I want to just focus, and, and, and because the passage we're going to look at is going to do this, I want to just focus on the first part, okay, of this whole graph. So, so how does a person, here's a question we're going to deal with today, how does a person go from being distant from God, investigating Jesus, to coming to a place uh, where they become born again, into the family of God, as a, as, a, as a Christian. How does, that, how does that occur? Okay, so we're gonna be talking about that. So listen, if you are a person this morning who's investigating Jesus and you have questions about what does it mean to be a Christian and, and I, I have a lot of questions about God and about Christ and those types, if, if you, if you're, if you're, I want you to really tune in if you're in that uh, particular area because um, I know that for, for many people, they're like, what exactly does it mean to be a Christian? Do I have to fill out a form? Do I have to go to a class? Do I have to sacrifice a small animal? Like, what is necessary for me to, to, to become a Christ follower? Help me understand that. And so today, my hope is to add a lot of clarity to that. But, but listen, at the same time, I also want to say that if you're a person that follows Jesus and you've been following Jesus for many years, you might be tempted to say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tune out now because we're talking about how to become a Christian, and I already know that. I've already done that, and so I can kind of tune out, and I can kind of coast, and I can just sort of doodle on my paper, and I can play words with friends, and I can just do that for the rest of the service if I want to. And I just want to encourage you not to do that, because I believe that for those of us who follow Jesus, uh, there are some assumptions that we can make about this, about this transformation, um, that can be very dangerous. And, and I believe, honestly, that it is possible that you could be in the church, and you could be around the things of Christ for 20 years and miss this. And so I really want to tune in on this because there's a lot of assumptions we can make that can get us in some dangerous places as it relates to that. Okay, so, so the question, again, I want to deal with is how does a person go from investigating Jesus, from distant from God, to becoming born again? How does that happen? Okay, here's the simple answer. The simple answer is in order to become a Christ follower, in order to, to be born again, you have to embrace Jesus. You have to accept Christ. You have to receive Jesus. Um, you have to put your faith in Christ. You have to come to Jesus. I could, I could say it a million different ways. You guys have probably heard this a million different ways, right? You talk to a relative and they say, I accepted Christ. I received Jesus. I came to Christ. I put my faith in Jesus. There's a lot of different ways to put this. Now, now that sounds very simple and that's all fine and good. But here's the problem. Okay, here's the rub. Is I think, my guess is, that all of us in this room would agree. We would all agree that if you, if you want to follow Jesus... That begins by surrendering your life to Jesus. 
I think all of us would agree with that. Yeah, that's true. If you, if you want to follow Christ, you need to first start by putting your faith in Christ, by coming to Christ, by believing and accepting Christ. I think all of us would agree with that. But here, here's where the tension is. It is, um, I think that what some of us might not all agree on is this question. Not have you come to Christ, but this one. What Christ is it that you have come to? And I want to I deal with that because if I asked everyone in this room and I said, uh, let me ask you, have you come to Christ? My guess is that many of you in this room would say, yes, I have accepted Christ. Yes, I have embraced Christ. Yes, I believe in Christ. But if, I think if I asked the question further and I said, tell me about the Christ that you have received, I think that we might get some very different responses in here. Uh, and, and, and if you ask our culture, you would get a lot of different. Why is that? Because there's so many, you guys know this, there are so many different presentations of Christ in our culture that sometimes the issue of who Jesus is is not real clear, clean cut. It's not real clear, right? And, and, and so we kind of get into that whole thing. Now, now here's what the Apostle Paul is going to show us in this passage, okay? The reason the Apostle Paul is writing this passage that we're about to read today is because he's addressing a situation in this first century church, a place called Colossae. And here's what was going on in this church in Colossae. If you ask the Colossians, these, these Christians in Colossae, if you ask them, have you embraced Christ? They would say, yes, we've embraced Christ. But the problem was, is that they began defining Jesus differently. There's all of these different teachings that, that existed in that day about who Christ was. So, for example, uh, there's a group of people called the Judaizers uh, back in Colossae in this time. Uh, the Judaizers were basically a group of people um, who subscribed to syncretism. If you guys don't know what syncretism is, it's basically, uh, uh, it's basically borrowing and adapting um, from different religions. It's a hodgepodge, right? And so the Judaizers, if you ask them, do you believe in Christ? They would say, yeah, we believe in Christ, but we also believe in this, and we believe in a little bit of that, we have a little bit of this, and we kind of have this hybrid of faith. So you have the Judaizers. Uh, Another group of people that existed in the Colossian church was a group called the Gnostics. And the Gnostics were were essentially this teaching. They were kind of the hyper-intellectuals of their time. And they believed that in order to understand God, you had to have some kind of special supernatural knowledge that only the, the, the elite could have. And this was a group of people who were offended by the simplicity of the gospel. By the way, if you missed the conversation on the gospel, that was last week. But there's a group of people that said the gospel, that's kids' stuff. And so they started integrating all these different philosophies into their Christianity. There was another group of people in, in the Colossian church uh, that basically believed and worshipped angels. And they had invented this entire structure of class and of hierarchy of angels. And so they said some angels have a lot of authority, some have a little authority, and they worshipped the angels. They would pray to the angels. And so for them it was like the app store. There was an angel for everything. You're like, oh, we got to get dinner. Well, you got to pray to this angel. Well, my son ran away from home. Well, you got to pray to this angel. There's different angels for other things. And and, and listen, here's the thing. They started to incorporate the worship of angels along with the worship of Jesus. And so basically, here's what was happening in the city of Colossae, is if you went to these people and you said, do you worship Jesus? Have you come to Jesus? They would all say, yeah, we've come to Jesus. We've accepted Jesus. But when you ask them, what Jesus have you accepted? They would give you a wildly different response. And so the Apostle Paul writes what we're about to read to confront that. Now, here's the thing. This is first century Colossae that I'm telling you about. But it probably doesn't, it's not going to take much for me to convince you that it's not much different of a landscape in 21st century America, right? There are so many different presentations of Jesus that when I ask people, have you come to Jesus? A lot of people might say yes, but the better question is, but which one did you come to? Which Jesus is it that you have come to? Which Jesus have you accepted? Uh, just to kind of make my point a little bit more clear, I want to give you just real quick, just, just four broad generalities of how people in our culture sometimes tend to come to Jesus. All right? So let me just give you a few of them. Here's the first one. First broad generalization. Many people in our culture, when they come to Jesus, if they come to Jesus, they come to Jesus as a religious worldview, right? A religious worldview. And, and so what do I mean by that? Um, well, this is what I mean. Many people, when they come to Jesus, they come to Jesus as a philosophy, They come to Jesus as an ideal. They come to Jesus as a, I accept the the broad bulk of what Jesus taught. His morality, his teaching, the love your neighbor, the, 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 the be humble, the love each other, the turn the other cheek when you get... When someone hits you on one cheek, turn the other. In most instances, you should probably do that. And many people subscribe to a Christian worldview. 
And that's what they mean when they say they've come to Christ. Many people would say, I've come to Christ and I view him as a religious guru. He is one religious guru among many other religious gurus. And, and there are, you know, there's many different ways to get to God. All of them are equally viable. And if I asked you, if I asked someone, have you come to Christ? They would say yes. And what they mean is, I have made a personal religious decision to embrace Jesus Christ. He is my preference among all of the other uh, very equally viable religions that all lead kind of to the same place. And so for many people, when you ask them, have you embraced Christ in our culture? What they mean is, I have embraced a Judeo-Christian worldview, right? Uh, here's another one, another broad generality. Uh, some people, when they say they've embraced Christ, what they mean is they've embraced Jesus as a life coach, okay? Jesus is a life coach, right? That Jesus exists to make my life better, to help me achieve my goals, to help me find fulfillment in life and to be a holistic person. That's why Jesus exists, right? And so I go to church and I, and I engage in spiritual things because it makes me a more holistic person. And so Jesus, in my thinking, is sort of like a therapist meets a life coach, meets a personal trainer kind of thing. And he just sort of guides and directs me and helps me accomplish my goals. He helps me accomplish my dreams. That's who Jesus is. So many people in our culture, when they approach Jesus, they approach him this way, that, that Jesus is gonna help me kind of achieve my life goals and my life dreams, right? That's another broad general. How about this one? I call this one the country music Jesus, right? So many people, when they come to Jesus, right? Here he is with his American flag, his cowboy hat and his shotgun, right? This is, this, is, this is the country Jesus. I think all of us know in country music, there are, there are staple features that make country music country music, right? So in every country song, what do you have? Well, you got your, you're working all hard, and you're working hard in America all week, right? You got your pickup truck on Friday night, you're going to go out and get drunk. Saturday, you're going to party, and then on, on Sunday, you're going to come to church and worship Jesus because it's America, right? And that's what we do in America. Jesus, America. America, Jesus. America. I don't know what I'm doing anymore. And so that whole, but, but for some of us, that's, that's kind of how we come to Jesus. We come to him uh, because that's what my family has done for years. It's, it's part of our tradition. It's part of our heritage. And so Jesus occupies one space in my life on a, on a, one, for an hour on Sunday, but for the rest of the week, it's all about other things, and that's sort of how we come to Jesus. Many, 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 many people in our country today, when they come to Christ, they come to him this way. Here's the last one I'd say is the storybook Jesus. Now, some of us, when we come to Jesus, many people in our culture view Jesus through this lens. It's the storybook Jesus. Uh, Jesus is a, he is basically a cartoon character, right? And it's, and this is a, he's a, he's a, he's a child, he's a child book character, and it's really good for the kids, right? that, that Jesus is sort of like a Mr. Rogers kind of thing, and, and, and when I was a kid, I, I, I learned about Jesus, and now that my, I have kids, I want them to learn about Jesus. It's a really good foundation for parenting. It's awesome to teach our kids that Jesus died on the cross for their sins and that they should be nice people and they should love. That's a really good thing to teach our kids. Now, once you get older, you kind of grow out of it a little bit because life is more complex than, come on, let's face it, right? Sometimes the gospel seems like it's a little bit overly simplistic. Things, things aren't that black and white. Life is a little more complicated than that. And so it's a little bit childish. And so some of us uh, kind of embrace Christ that way. And listen, I'm just giving you broad generalities. I could give you more. You could probably give me more too of ways that we tend to come to Christ. But you can see that it's a complicated question. When I say, have you come to Christ? It is not a very easy question because the better question is, which one have you come to? Which Jesus is the one that you've embraced, right? Because uh, it actually reminds me of, um, you guys, I don't know if, you're, if this is going through your mind, but it went through my mind when I was preparing was the movie Talladega Nights. Uh, if you guys ever saw The Ballad of Ricky Bobby with Will Ferrell. But there's a classic scene in that movie where Will Ferrell and his family are praying around the table and, and, and uh, Ricky Bobby, Will Ferrell's character, keeps praying to the baby Jesus, right? And so he's like, dear eight pound, you know, 10 ounce, golden diaper Jesus. And he's like praying to this Jesus and his family starts getting in this conversation about which is the best Jesus to pray to and I think this is just such a funny dialogue. Check this out. Ricky Bobby says, well, I like the Christmas Jesus best, and I'm saying grace. So when you say grace, you can say it to the grown-up Jesus or the teenage Jesus or the bearded Jesus or whoever you want. And then Cal, who's Ricky Bobby's friend in the movie, says, I like to picture Jesus in a tuxedo T-shirt because it says, like, I want to be formal, but I'm here to party too because I like to party, so I like my Jesus to party, right? And then Walker, who's Ricky's son, which, by the way, his other son is Texas Ranger, Walker says... I like to picture Jesus as a ninja fighting off evil samurai. And then Cal comes back in again. I like to think of Jesus like with a giant eagle's wings and singing lead vocals for Leonard Skinner with like an angel band. 
And, and it's, a, it's a funny scene in the movie, but it's actually a really um, almost a painfully accurate commentary of the way that uh, our culture interacts with Christ. I make Jesus whoever I want him to be. I like my Jesus like this. I like my, you pray to the Jesus you like, I pray to the Jesus I like, and we all define Jesus differently. Now, here's what the Apostle Paul is going to do in this passage. In five verses, right, five of the most powerful verses in the entire New Testament, the Apostle Paul is going to come into the Colossians, and he's going to say, listen, if you want to grow spiritually, if you want to grow spiritually, he says, then you better understand who you're dealing with when you're talking about Christ. And he's going to tell us exactly who we're dealing with. The Apostle Paul is going to come and he's going to look at the Colossians. He's going to say, look, let's be super clear on this. If you want to grow in your faith and you want to, and you want to experience God in the way that you were designed to experience God, then you better not have a Jesus who is a construct of your preferences and of your imagination. You better not have a Jesus who is simply a result of the cultural you know, whatever, all the cultural opinions and persuasions that people want to put on Jesus is you better come to him the way he really is. And so he, in five verses, is going to explain to us exactly who it is that we're dealing with when we're talking about Jesus Christ. Now, let me just say about these five verses real quick. These five verses that we're going to look at are undisputedly, undisputedly, uh, the, the richest, most concise, um, most comprehensive Christological verses that exist in the entire Bible. That is undisputed among all scholarship. They look at these verses and they say, this is the greatest Christological passage. Christological basically means that which pertains to Jesus. So like, you want to know Jesus? Man, these five verses are the most condensed, comprehensive uh, picture that we have in Scripture of who he is. And so we're going to see that. Now, the other thing about these five verses we're going to look at is that um, most scholars agree that this is probably a hymn uh, this would have been something that was sung, sung by, by the early church. They would have sung this as a song of some type. Okay, so we're going to look at these verses, verse 15 to verse 20, five verses. That's all we're looking at about who Jesus is. Who is it that we're dealing with? All right, so let's just take a look. We'll jump right in. Verse 15, Paul says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, and he is the firstborn over all creation. All right, let's stop there. Uh, we're not going to get very far. Because these are just unbelievably powerful verses. Look what the Apostle Paul, look how he starts when he decides he's going to talk about Jesus. He says, the Son, capital S, is the image of the invisible God, and he is the firstborn over all creation. Well, let's unpack this a little bit. You notice that the first thing that he says, the very first thing uh, Paul says about Christ, is he says he is the image of the invisible God. Now that term, that term image that's used right there, uh, literally in the original language, it means the exact representation. He says that Jesus is the exact representation of God. In other words, what he says is God is invisible. No one has ever seen God at any time. God is invisible. He is not like us. But God is made visible entirely and perfectly in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, by the way, what the Apostle Paul says right there squares up with what the rest of the Bible teaches about Jesus. Let me just give you a couple quick passages on this. So, for example, in John 14, 9, here's what Jesus says about himself. Jesus says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. He says, you want to see God? You look at me. The invisible God is made visible through the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus said this about himself. The Apostle Paul verifies this about him. Here's another passage. I love the way the writer of Hebrews puts it. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, he says, The Son is the radiance of God's glory, and he is the exact representation of his being. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, and he is the exact representation of his being. I love that, that term right there when it says the Son is the radiance of God's glory. I find that so helpful. And the reason is because I want you just for a minute to think about the Son, right? Think about the S-U-N, Son. How is it that you and I are able to see the sun? How, how are we able to, to, to see it visually with our eyes? Which, of course, you don't want to look at it for very long. But how is it that we're able to see it? Well, here's how. It's because it emits radiation, right? Light, light pours out of the sun. It radiates. It, it emanates radiation. And so it's because of that that not only we can see the sun, but it's because of that that we can see anything else. 
The only reason we can see the moon and we can see the other planets is because of the radiation of the sun. All of the planets, they don't emit radiation, and so we couldn't see them. They would be invisible to us. But everything is made visible because of the radiation of the sun. Well, in the same way, this passage tells us that Jesus Christ is to uh, the Father what radiation is to the sun, right? He, he, he is the exact representation of God's being, and he is the, the radiance of God's glory. And so what the Bible says is, man, do you want to know God? You look at Jesus. That's how you and I can understand him and can see him. He is the exact image of him. So you want to know how God loves you? Look at Jesus. Look at how Jesus loves you. You want to know how God feels about stale religious practices? Look at how Jesus felt about stale religious practices. You want to know how God loves the disenfranchised and the marginalized in society? Look at how Jesus Christ interacted with the disenfranchised and the marginalized of society. He's the exact representation of God. In fact, he himself is God. That's what the Bible tells us. And so he says in this passage, he says that the Son is the image of the invisible God. And look at the second part. He's the firstborn over all creation. He's the firstborn over all creation. Let me clarify that a little bit. A lot of times when we read firstborn, uh, we tend to think birth order, right? So I have three kids. Um, and uh, my oldest is my firstborn because he was born first. Now, that doesn't mean that I love him any more than my other kids or I love him any less than any of my other kids. It just means that he was born first. And so a lot of times when we read this, when it says the son is the firstborn over all creation, uh, we tend to think, oh, that means Jesus was born first. But that's not what it's saying. In fact, most of the time when the Bible uses the term firstborn, what it's referring to is not birth order. Sometimes it is. But most of the time what it's referring to is a position of honor. Okay? It is a title of rank and a title of authority. So let, let me just give you a quick example. In Psalm 8927, uh, the psalmist is writing about the Messiah, and here's what he says. He says, I'm going to appoint him to be my firstborn. He will be the most exalted of kings of the earth. You hear that? I'm going to appoint him to be firstborn. And so in other words, when the Bible says that Jesus Christ is firstborn over all creation, what that's saying is Jesus Jesus uh, possesses a place of highest honor above all other creation. He, he, he is of the highest and the first priority over all things in creation. Now, let me just tell you why the Apostle Paul said that. What the Apostle Paul, the reason he's saying that is because he's trying to clarify to the Colossians, listen, this idea that Jesus Christ is just another spiritual entity among other spiritual entities, he says it's entirely inaccurate. This whole idea that Jesus Christ is just one avenue in which we get to God among many other viable avenues, he says, is not accurate. Jesus Christ alone is the exact representation of God's being, and he is first over all creation. He has first honor over everything that's been made. That means he does not share that position with anyone else. So this idea that Jesus is just one among many other religious gurus in, in many different pathways in which we can get to God is not biblical at all. In fact, Jesus Christ himself said, he said, I, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. Uh, that is a claim of exclusivity, and that is a claim of priority. I'm first above all things. The Apostle Paul tells us this. And then he goes on. Look at this next verse. Look at verse 16. He says, for in him all things are created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and they are for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Man, that is a powerful set of verses right there. Do you notice the, the prepositions that are used? He says all things are made for him. They're made by him. They're made in him. They're made through him. He, he's trying to show the all-encompassing authority that Jesus has over all creation. He says Jesus is the intelligence. He is the heart. He is the creative power that is behind everything that exists. And you notice what he says in verse 16 again. He says in, all, in, in him all things were created. All things were created in Christ. And then as if we didn't understand what that meant by all things... The Apostle Paul goes on to explain what he means by all things. So look what he says. He says, things in heaven and on earth. And by the way, when he says heaven there, what he's probably referring to is the heavens. He's talking about the universe. So the Apostle Paul says, well, what, what, since Christ is responsible for creating all things for him, by him, in him, through him, he's like, okay, well, like what? He's like, well, like, let's start with the universe. Um, all of the galaxies, 
the some estimated 200 to 400 billion galaxies in the known universe, each with some estimated 200 to 400 billion stars that exist within them. He says, Jesus Christ is the one who made those. They are for him, they are by him, they are through him, and they hold together as a result of him. And then he says, and everything on earth, everything on earth, the mountains, the ocean, vegetation, animals, jellyfish, right, cats, arguably, maybe, it's debatable, right? He made it all, though. He made it all. Now, why, why is he doing that? Why is he saying that? Well, here, here's why he's saying that. Because what the Apostle Paul is trying to clarify is he's saying, listen, you don't need a God for everything. You don't need a God for the mountain and a God for the sun and a God for the sea, which many religions have. He says, listen, you don't need to seek out astrologers to somehow read the signs in the sky to check your horoscope. He says, because there is one power that is responsible for everything that's in existence, whether it be in heaven or on earth, in the universe, from the, from the magnificent of astrophysics to the myopic of, of quantum physics. It all holds together. It is all created by, by who? By Jesus Christ alone. And he's talking about the, the complete and total authority that Jesus Christ has over creation. And then he goes on, he says, whether things in heaven or on earth, and he says this next part, visible and invisible, I just love that. He's like, there's invisible stuff too. That's Jesus. Then he says this next part, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and they are for him. Now, now let me just talk about that for a minute. Some of you, when you read that, you see thrones and powers and authorities and you might be asking, okay, so is that, is that referring to like governmental structures? Is that talking about, um, you know, monarchies and kingdoms throughout history? Is that what that's talking about? And let me just say, to some extent, that is true. Uh, the Bible is very clear that God is the one who is completely sovereign over all things, and he gives kingdoms to whoever he wishes. And so governments rise and fall, kingdoms ebb and flow as a result of God's sovereign desires. That's how that happens. But let me just say, when the Bible in this passage explains the idea of thrones and powers and authorities, what that's actually talking about, and when you kind of pull it back in the original language, is it's talking about things in the spiritual realm. Okay, that's what he's talking about. Now, you guys might remember, I told you that in the city of Colossae, there was a group of people who were worshiping angels. And so what they had done is they had developed this very intricate, complex system of hierarchy. And they believed that there were some angels who had more power than other ones, and they would worship these angels accordingly. And so what the Apostle Paul is doing right here is he's saying, listen, Jesus is not just another spiritual being among the angels, it's not like you go to Jesus for some things and you go to angels for another thing. He's like, that's not what it's like. He says, no, no, everything in the spiritual realm, whether it be rulers or thrones and authorities, whatever kind of angelic being you're talking about, he says all of that was created by, through, for, and in Jesus Christ. That the angels worship Christ. That's what he's trying to say. He's like, you worship the angels, the angels worship Jesus. So why don't you just worship Jesus? That's what he's getting at with these people. And what he's saying is, listen, the angels who, by the way, if you and I ever saw an angel, we would do exactly what the people in the Bible do who see angels. You know what that is? They, they are terrified. That's why, like, whenever you think of angels, sometimes we think of little babies with wings. We think of precious moments. That is not what the Bible says at all. The Bible always explains when people encounter angels, the first commandment that comes out of the angel's mouth is fear not. And you know why that is? Because they're afraid. They're terrified. And if we saw angels, we would be terrified at their presence. But you know what the Bible says angels do in the presence of, of, of the exalted Jesus? They cover their face, they cover their feet, and they hide and they shout holy. That's what they do. And, 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 so, and so, so the apostle Paul says, look, the angels worship Christ, okay? Everything in the spiritual realm points to Jesus. Everything that's created looks and, and exists for the person of Jesus Christ. Even demonic forces and the devil which exist in, in rebellion against God, the Bible tells us that they shudder at the name of Christ. One of the things I love to read in the New Testament is I love to read when Jesus interacts with demons. You guys ever watch these passages? It's almost funny to see how terrified demons are in the presence of Christ. There's that one passage, I don't know if you guys remember, this, Jesus is walking down the road and there's this guy who's possessed by a demon and, and the demon sees Jesus. You guys remember what he says? He looks at him and he goes, son of man, are you here to torture me before my time? It's as if, it's as if the, the demon was like, I knew there was a beatdown coming, but I thought maybe you were early. And he's like, so are you, are you here to do that? And then Jesus looks at him, he rebukes him, and he says, you be quiet about that. Don't you tell anyone who I am. 
and then he commands the demon to go out into the pigs. You guys remember this whole scene that happens? Listen, the demons are terrified of Christ. You and I, we have nightmares about demonic forces, but do you know what the demonic forces have nightmares about? Jesus. They're like, ah, they shudder at his presence, all right? And what the Apostle Paul, listen, what the Apostle Paul is saying is this. He's saying this storybook picture of Jesus that you have, uh, that Jesus is just for kids, this Mr. Rogers sissified version of Christ, he says, look, you got to get rid of that, all right? Because if you have this picture in your mind, that Jesus is just for little kids. He's like, no, 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 that's not how it works. If you were to see this Christ, if you were to encounter him in his, in, in his glorified form, you would do exactly what everyone in the Bible does when they encounter him in his glorified form. You know what that is? They fall to their face. You would do what John did, the disciple in the book of Revelation, which by the way, John was Jesus' best friend when Jesus walked this planet. And when John took one glance at Jesus in his glorified state on his throne, the Bible says he fell prostrate on his face like a dead man. You know what you would do if you encountered the living Jesus today? If you saw him in his glorified state, you would do exactly what Isaiah did in Isaiah chapter six. You would fall down to your face and you would say, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. That's what you would say if you saw him. I've talked to people. They're like, you know what? When I see Jesus in heaven, I got a couple things I want to ask him. I got a couple bones I want to pick. I'm going to say, I'm like, no, you're not. (laughs) No, you're not. You're going to see Jesus. You know what you're going to do? You're going to fold like a cheap lawn chair. You're going to go right down to the ground. That's what's going to happen. And you're going to say, I'm not worthy. I'm just not. I'm just not. That's what you're going to do. You know why? Because that's what all creation is doing. All creation bows down to the glory of Jesus Christ. All things are made by him and through him and for him and in him that even the devil himself shudders at its presence. That's what scripture says. The Bible tells us this about Christ. So this idea that Jesus is some storybook character, kind of a sissified version for the kids, man, you don't know who you're dealing with. You don't know what you're talking about. That's not this Christ. And look what he says. Look at this next part, verse 18. He says, and he's the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have supremacy. So Paul says, this Jesus, this one, not, not the life coach Jesus, not the American Jesus, uh, not the philosophy of Jesus, not this Jesus is the head of the church. In other words, what he says is, you wanna build a church on any other Jesus, it's gonna be real weird and it's gonna go real strange real quick. This Jesus is the head of the body of his church. And then he says, he is the firstborn among the dead of the resurrection, meaning Jesus Christ defeated death. Jesus Christ took it on and through the resurrection, he defeated death once and for all. And all of us who follow him will follow him into resurrection. And then it says this last line, this is so powerful. He says, so that in everything, he might have supremacy. So that in everything, Jesus might be supreme. Uh, some of you guys have different translations there. It might say that in everything, Christ might have preeminence. Some of your translations that say, so that in everything, Christ might take first place. Now, here's the idea. The Bible is saying that Jesus Christ alone is worthy of supremacy in every, everything. I don't know if you guys noticed the all-inclusive language used in this passage. How many times has this passage said everything, all things, everything, all things? Seven times in this passage, the Apostle Paul is trying to show us the totality, the all-inclusiveness of Jesus Christ's authority over all things, that in all things he might have supremacy. And if that's not enough to talk about how powerful and how mighty and how lofty Christ is, I feel like the next part is, in my mind, probably the most powerful of them all. Because look what it says in verse 19. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him. The complete fullness of God dwelt in Christ. But then it says this, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now, this piece right here, this piece right here is what boggles my mind more than anything because the Bible tells us that it is this Jesus, it is this one who came to this earth. It is this one who was born in a borrowed manger, who grew up to a, with a blue-collar family in relative obscurity, that it's this, Jesus, this one, the creator of all things, the one in which the entire universe is held together. It is this Jesus who went to the cross to die for the sins of, of those of us who were guilty when he himself was not guilty. I'm just telling you, when you start to do that math, 
and you realize the heights in which Jesus came from and the depths to which he stooped and he lowered himself, the humility that he placed himself under to die for, it, it causes me to overflow with thankfulness. Because listen, if Jesus was just a good teacher and then he died on the cross for my sins, that would be one thing. That'd be powerful. That'd be amazing if he did that. If Jesus was a religious guru who, who just got persecuted and beaten and got crucified for the things that he taught, I mean, that'd be impressive. That would be, that'd be something. But the fact that we're talking about the God of the universe, the one in which all things hold together, who is before all things, that it was that God who humbled himself and came to the cross to die for us, that is unbelievably powerful. Explains to us the distance in which God, God uh, came to, 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 to be with us, to love us, to care for us. That distance reveals to us the extent of God's love for us. And see, what the Apostle Paul is saying to the Colossians, he's saying, listen, have you come to Christ? Have you? And even more importantly, if you come to this Christ, is this the Christ that you've come to? Because if, if you build the foundation of your faith off of any other Christ, you're not dealing with the true Jesus. This is the true Jesus. And so I just want to close today with two questions, just two questions, and then we're finished. So here it is. Number one, I want to ask you this question. Have you embraced Christ? Have you come to Christ? All right. And let me just say, if you're a person investigating Jesus right now, I know you might have a lot of questions about religion. You might have a lot of questions about, you know, did, did Noah really build an ark? And did he really put two animals on it? Did God create the universe in X amount of days? You might have a lot of questions. But let me just be as clear as I can. Right here is the crux of the matter. These five verses are the crux of the matter. All right? And, and listen, you have to grapple with the realities that are explained in this passage about who Jesus is. Because coming to Jesus any other way, this notion that I can come to Christ and that I can retrofit him to my preferences, that I can kind of custom make Christ based on my desires and the way that I like him. Listen, the Bible does not for a second allow that. It just doesn't. It doesn't. The, 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 the Apostle Paul in this passage does not allow that. Jesus Christ himself does not allow that. See, some of you might read this and say, well, that's the Apostle Paul's opinion of Jesus, right? And I'm sure he's probably exaggerating a little bit. Nope, this is exactly what Jesus said about himself. Have you guys ever read the things that Jesus said? Because yeah, Jesus said, love your neighbors. We all like that. And Jesus said that we should turn the other cheek and we like that. And Jesus said we should forgive and we all like that. But you know what else Jesus said? Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And there is no one that comes to the Father but by me. Who says stuff like that? I mean, if you're going to say something like that, you're either, you're either a lunatic and you're certifiably nuts, right? Or you're just an egotistical maniac. Or maybe you're God. Maybe that's the case, right? Now, Jesus said on another occasion, some of you might remember, he said, if, you've seen, if you have seen me, you have seen God. I and the Father am one. That's what Jesus said about himself. There was one occasion, you guys might remember this, Jesus was talking to a, a group of Pharisees and they were like, you think you're better than Abraham, don't you? What makes you think you're better than Abraham? And then Jesus looked at him and he said, listen, before Abraham was even born, I am. Who says stuff like that? Who says stuff like that? And so if you're like, I accept Jesus as a good teacher. I'll accept Jesus as my life coach. I'll accept the Christian, Judeo-Christian worldview as a positive way to live life. Look, Jesus won't let you do that. And so you have to grapple with Christ on this level. Either, either this passage is true about Jesus or it is not. And that, that's the bottom line. Either this is true about either Jesus Christ is the creator behind all of the universe. All things are made through him, by him, in him, for him, or they are not. And if it is not true, if this is not true, then why are we wasting our time? Because everything in Christianity that's built off of, off, uh, everything that's built in Christianity is built off of this claim of who Jesus Christ is. And so my first question is, have you come to Christ? And if you're a person investigating Jesus, I would encourage you, man, to grapple with Jesus on this level. If you have questions about that too, here'd be an encouragement for you. Go through the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels, and read the things that Jesus said about himself. Just investigate it. Find out what he said. Don't let culture tell you who Jesus is. Don't you come up with who Jesus is. Let Jesus be Jesus and come to him as he is. Here's my second question. And my second question is actually a little more tricky, but it's this. Have you come to this Jesus? 
So for some of you, when I asked, have you come to Jesus? Your answer is, yeah, I came to Jesus. I did that a while ago. Yep, totally did that, nailed that. But listen, here, here's, here's, here's the question I'm really getting at is, have you come to this Jesus? Not have you come to Life Coach Jesus, not have you come to American Jesus, not have you come to Jesus as a philosophy, have you come to Christ on, on these terms, have you? have you? Have you built off of these things? Let me clarify what I'm not asking, by the way. Here's what I'm not asking. I'm not asking, is your theology in tune with this passage? It's not what I'm asking. Because there's probably many of you in this room that would say, oh yeah, I, I've read that passage. I believe the theology of that, right? I believe, in, I believe in the pre-existent Christ. I believe in the deity of Christ. I can say big words and do this with my hand. I don't know why I'm doing this, you know? You're like, I, can, I, I know all this stuff, right? I believe it. That's not what I'm asking you. Because if your theology lines up with this, that's fantastic. That's wonderful, right? But here's the better question. Is your life in tune with this truth? Does your life square up with this reality at all? Right? right? Because do you realize what this passage just said? This passage is not just words on a page. This passage just said that Jesus Christ is the all-powerful God behind all of creation. That's what it just said. Jesus Christ has all authority in all matters, that everything is made for him, by him, and through him, and that, he is, and that Jesus Christ alone is worthy of all supremacy in every matter of life, even matters in your life. And listen, if that, if, that, if that sits up here as theology, but it doesn't enter into your life, it's evidence that we haven't really understood it and that we don't really believe it. Because if this is, tr- if this is true, it's got to change some stuff. Right? So for example, if I was to follow you around for a couple of days, and I was to watch you, if I was to watch you interact with your family, and I was to watch you interact with your friends, and I was to watch you interact at work, and I was to watch you when you were by yourself when no one else was watching. That got kind of creepy, kind of quick. Right? So if I was sitting in my kiddie pool watching you, right? And, but but if, if I was, every area of your life, if I was to go check that out, right, w- would I be able to, would, you, would your belief in this passage uh, line up with those areas of your life? Would, I, would, would we come to the conclusion that, yeah, Christ is supreme in everything? Uh, this person is convinced that Jesus Christ is the creator of all things, that everything is held together by him, and that he deserves supremacy in every area of their life. It's evident in their life. But it's to look at your marriage and your dating and your finances and your sexuality and, and, and your, your, your life when you're by your, would it true up to this passage? Is your life in tune with this? So because here's what I'm convinced of. I'm convinced that these five verses, the song that exists in these five verses about, about, the, the, about the power and about the supremacy of Jesus, I believe that that is like the song that all creation is singing. It is always, it's like the music, it's the melody that everything in creation is humming at all times. It undergirds everything. And I believe, I believe that if you stop for even a second, you hear it, you hear it. When you're out at nighttime and you look up at the canopy of the stars above you, you can hear the song. You can hear it. When you look into creation, you see the sunset. When, you, when you're in the woods, when you, when you just look at the magnificent of what has been created, you can hear it. You can hear it. And when, you look into, when you look into your child's eyes and the wonder of life and, you, and you're caught with that, you hear it. You can hear it. And, and the song, what is the song saying? It's saying, there is a God. There is a God. There is a God. All of this was made by somebody. All of this is made for us. It's all for Christ. It's all for Jesus. That is the song that all creation is perpetually singing. And I believe that you know it too. You can hear it when you quiet for just a moment. See, see, and the problem is, when we live our lives out of tune with this song, when we live our lives in such a way that we don't true up with this, what happens is it creates disharmony inside of us. Something never feels right. We feel dis, disharmony. We, we feel disharmony in our hearts. For some of you right now, you feel inner angst inside of you that you just can't explain. There's an inner angst. Everything else around you is fine, but there's just this, there's this anxiety, this inexplicable anxiety that exists within you all the time. Something's not right. Something is out of tune. For some of you, there, there's, this, there's this thing inside. Everything is going fine, but there's this inner striving inside of you that you can't seem to silence. And, and, and you try to suffocate it. And so you, you try to outspend it. You try to, to out-entertain it. You try to uh, dull it down with parties and with friends and with all kinds of stuff, but, but it's, it's inescapable because every time you pause for a moment, it returns over and over again. There's an angst inside. There's a disharmony inside of you. Why is that? Here's what I believe. I believe it's because something is out of tune. 
with, with what all of creation is singing. Because, because listen, when, when, when you begin living your life to glorify something or someone else other than Jesus Christ, or where there's avenues and compartments in your life that you are unwilling to allow the authority of Jesus Christ to come into, it's going to create disarm, disharmony because everything was created to glorify him. And when you live your life out of tune, it's gonna create an inner angst inside of you. But listen, the inverse is true as well. Because the inverse is, when you live your life for the glory of Jesus, when your life exists to, to glorify him, and when every compartment of your life declares the supremacy of Christ, when that happens, it doesn't matter what's happening around you. It could be chaos around you, but on the inside, there's peace. Why? Because you are in tune. You are in harmony with, with the way all things were created. And so the question is, not simply have you come to Christ, but even more, have you come to this Christ? Have you come to him? And that's the question. Let's pray together. Well, Jesus, I want to say thank you for your word to us this morning um, because the, the, the reality, this, is, this, this cannot simply be words on a page. These words are, are, are too strong. They're too powerful. They, they say too many radical things for us just to dismiss them. We just can't. And if, we have, if we have a moment of, of intellectual honesty, I think we have to realize that, man, there is no other way we can come to you except for the way that you've presented us here. And so, Jesus, I ask you that you would help us to, to let you be who you are without trying, to, uh, without trying to push any of our agenda or any of our persuasions or opinions or preferences or prejudices on you. God, God when we come to you, it's not that you have to change for us. It's that we have to change because of who you are. And uh, Lord, this passage is, is so powerful because it tells us that if this is true, then, um, man, you, don't, you, know, you can't be like our personal assistant. Someone, someone with, this, with this kind of credentials isn't someone that you give a compartment of your life. And so, Jesus, I want to pray specifically for the person that's investigating you. Maybe for the first time today, they just embrace you. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means that you come to Christ. But what Christ do we come to? Bible says that this is the Christ that we come to. The, the only exclusive, preeminent, firstborn over all creation, the one who sacrificed and died for us. And so I pray that maybe you'd help us to embrace that today, God. And for those of us who do follow you, Lord, I pray that you would help us to examine our own lives and help us just to take an inventory to see are there places that we are unsubmitted, that we are not willing to allow your authority to flow into? Are there places that we are out of tune God, are there places that there's disharmony in our life because, because we are, we're, missing, um, we're, we're missing the song that all creation is singing about you. And so, God, tune our hearts up. I pray even as we worship and we sing right now, Father, that you would just help us to look inside, to talk with you, to dialogue with you, God, to surrender to you in a fresh way. And so I want to ask these things. I'm going to pray them in the name of Jesus. Amen.